Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. Today we have a renowned writer guest to belatedly honor April's National Poetry Month. Madison author Jessie Lee Kirchival. She is Professor Emerit of English at UW-Madison and was the founding director of the MFA program in creative writing there from 1994 to 2010. Kirchival is a prolific author and editor of 18 books of poetry, fiction, memoir, and translations, including her most recent book of poems, I Want to Tell You. Author and editor Hilda Raz says of Kirchival in her new book, She's cut open her heart to call out our human grief and love. And yes, she gives words to death. Please read this magnificent book. We'll dive deep into I Want to Tell You Today, as well as Kirchhoff's recent work translating Uruguayan poets and her life as a teacher and mentor of writers. Jessie Lee Kirchhoff, welcome to Public Affair. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I always love being on Wart. We're really happy to have you here in person in the studio. And welcome to all of you listening today. If you'd like to share a celebration of poetry or a favorite poem or have a question for Jesse Lee Kirchival, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Jesse Lee, I'd love to start today by bringing, you, bringing us right to the poetry and having you read a poem first to introduce us to this marvelous new book, uh, could you read The Half-Life of Grief for us, please? Yes. I have it marked. Let me find it. There it is. The Half-Life of Grief. I know now why they say grief struck, like being thrown down and stepped on because it is, like being filled with a howling blue wind. I guess I thought grief passed like a season-long drought, or hard luck with hail. Instead, all night in your shrine in my memory, a terrible light shines, and there is such a wailing and gnashing of teeth. My teeth, me wailing, oh God. I thought love was the meaning of heaven. Now it turns out death holds the only damn key. Today, I found a wasp nest blown down, dry as dust, and all I could think about was you dying, dying, dying as if death were the endless house of paper rooms I cradled in one hand. Thank you, Jesse Lee. Grief and grappling with death yes. are obviously, especially the death of parents, mm -hmm. central to this book, consistent themes throughout the new book. Yet this really elegiac tone is also laced throughout with moments of transcendent love and joy and simple human pleasures. Um, what for you is the relationship or relationships between sorrow and joy and loss 
and love and and do poems like writing this book help you access those connections I think they do I still think there's a little humor I, I tend to tend to be a person who goes into a tragedy with a little bit of a joke but um, I think this book is more direct um, I was saying to people that it was a, uh, a a book of the pandemic but there's no poems in it about the pandemic and some of the poems are written before it but I think just during that time we all felt closer to death we all felt the fragility of life and I felt either some older poems which I pulled into this book or the new ones that I was writing that I, it's, I want to tell you that I want to be very direct and talk about these things. And, um, you know, I think the awareness of sorrow, of grief, is what makes joy so joyous. Um, and there's a sort of progress through the book, I think, of, of starting with the pure grief and, uh, and reaching, you know, um, moments of joy or acceptance at the end. The, the fiction writer part of me always tends to structure my, my poetry books with a little bit of a narrative arc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I see that towards the end especially, joy in place, joy in trees, joy in obviously love, relationships, family, always marked with a little bit of wry wit. <laughs> I'm thinking of the the speaker of one poem talking about uh, her daughter noticing a flyer from, from Miss Wisconsin, I think, and, yeah. and the daughter says, how much you want to bet? I'm paraphrasing, uh, she's blonde, yes. right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. so that's a, just an example of that kind mm -hmm. of wit you were, you were mentioning there. Um, I want to return to Half-Life of Grief for a second mm -hmm. or stay there for a second. Like many other poems in the book, mm -hmm. um, God is invoked in a reverent yet questioning way. Yes. Uh, in one po poem you write, God has no name. What will I call him when he comes? What's the relationship between writing poetry and plumbing the mysteries of faith for you or divinity? Uh, there's, there's a lot here. It's, it's subtle, but it's always there. Yeah, I, I was. I had that called to my attention. Um, not that I didn't know it when I was writing it, but I gave a reading for the Wisconsin Book Festival um, a month or so ago, and Erica Meitner, who's now teaching at the University of Wisconsin, a wonderful poet, a dear friend, really questioned me on the God issue, and um, and then I wrote a poem about her questioning me on the God issue. So this 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 is what happens when you're a poet. But I think um, it's both, you know, again, searching for meaning in these poems, particularly. But also God is, is sort of the unknown that I address. I mean, it's people often say, who is your poem addressed to? Who are you talking to? And I would say in a lot of these poems, it's almost like God as I am puzzlingly trying to envision him or her. Gosh, I just gendered him, her. Um, God, as I am trying to envision them. Thank you. Um, it's because I don't have a strict view of God. And when, when Erica was pressing me the other day, I was saying I had a very east side of Madison view of God, uh -huh. which is that I'm just speculating on it and open to all possibilities. Um, it's fitting, though, of course, because obviously the, the collection deals so much with death, and that is a moment in many people's lives when they, if not turn to a very fixed notion of God, at least are brought to consider uh, God's relationship to their notion of the afterlife, right? Or or what their notion of the afterlife is. It, has that been part of this process for you of dealing with death and grief as well? Yes, I think so. But I wouldn't say so much afterlife, which I have to say I am suspended state of belief about, but, but the idea of some kind of truth or some kind of reason for life. Um, and I do have uh, pretty, I guess my strongest core belief is in love and kindness. Um, again, I, I think that sounds... A little east side, but I, what I meant is that I often write about that I sort of believe that if you put love into the universe, it moves in strange ways and um, and is a good thing, always a good thing. 
And um, and that's really the compensation for grief if you lose someone that you love, that that love isn't lost. Um, and so I think I believe in that more firmly, and I'm always trying to urge myself to believe in that more firmly, rather than really thinking about what's going to happen, you know, if I walked out onto South Bedford Street and got hit by a truck. So that brings us back to that, that opening question, right? Mm-hmm. That sense of um, in the face of loss, love is where you're turning here. And yes. I, and I think that, that that's coming through the whole collection very clearly. We'll talk about a couple more uh, poems here in a minute, but first I want to reintroduce you. I'm talking today here on A Public Affair with author Jesse Lee Kercheval. We're talking about poetry, her latest collection of poems. I want to tell you if you have a celebration of poetry, a favorite poem, a question for Jesse Lee Kercheval, please re- give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can reach out on Twitter or Facebook. So place is another uh, theme that I see here in the book. Um, and certainly, though Madison is never explicitly named, <laughs> one might intuit it there in the background in places. Um, it's evoked in beautiful and complex ways in your poem, One City Built Upon Another. And I'd love to have you read that one for us for people can get a, a yes. sense of your work here. I was thinking about this poem the other day because it has Cahokia in it, the capital of the Mississippian culture in, in Illinois. And my children were just down there visiting the site and um, I have to say, I wouldn't have known about it if it weren't for them, um, for my daughter who first told me about it. And I went to see it. It's amazing. Everyone should go see Cahokia. It's outside St. Louis. Um, one city built upon another. The prairie is built upon an ocean bed. If not, where did all this fine sand come from? As with a city, one church may be built atop another, atop a temple, atop a simple ring of stones. You think I'm talking about Rome, but I am thinking of St. Louis, built on the great halls of Cahokia. Look it up. If you are waiting to cross an ocean to visit history, you do not know what is underneath your Nikes. Wait ten years, and the house where you grew up will be torn down, and they'll build another larger with a swimming pool. A farm becomes a mall. A mall becomes an enormous empty field where the crows that used to haunt the fields come back to peck the ragged grass. Read this sentence, and know it is about to become another. In a family, one sister comes before another. A mother, a father become, well, something for those crows. Wait, take a breath, at least one moment to see what was always there. I love the way that poem turns on the reader's expectations of where history is or where we might dig into the earth and find history and reminds us that, of course, it's everywhere, all around us, right beneath our feet. It really is true in Wisconsin, um, because we walk around, most of us, unaware of the history that came before the white settlers and um, the white invaders. And I think that's changing. You know, now I just taught much more in the schools, the history of the Native peoples, the First Nations. And um, um, I think that there's just much more awareness of it, you know, acknowledgments before events. But before, it was just, you know, as if we landed on another planet and there were no inhabitants before us. It was really quite poor. In this poem and several others in the book, you speak directly to the reader in a way that could be read as directive, but to me feels a little bit more like hard-won advice, (laughs) um, which I appreciated, actually. And um, this resonates, of course, with the book's title, I Want to Tell You, and you were mentioning at the outset that... um, you wanted to take a very direct tone in this book. 
Though it's not especially fashionable these days to talk about poetry as providing tools for life, uh, I definitely found some tools for life here, and I think many readers do go to poetry looking for this. Um, talk us through your relationship to statement and directive and um, telling, telling the reader what to do and how this has evolved for you over the years in your work. Yeah, I think I think this is what really unifies this book. I, I think probably if I go back and I look at other books, there that is there too. But I really specifically picked poems for that, and I wrote poems for that. Like some of the poems in this book are quite old. You, if you're clever, you can trace the trace the age of my children, who are currently, I do believe, twenty five and thirty one. Although I might be wrong a year one way or the other with one of them. Um, and so if there's a poem where my child is two, I probably wrote it much closer to when my child was two. And so there were some poems that didn't fit in other books, I think because of the voice. And this, that was a unifying thing here, um, that direct voice. Um, I think I use it in my um, essays. Um, that's pretty common in essay voice. You know, the essay is sort of like, look, I'm, I'm a smart person. I'm telling you something. Sometimes I've used it in first-person fiction. Um, it can be... Um, it can be tricky because it's like, it, it, in a way, it it can function like you, which is a second, you know, second person, where someone says they have a story and they say, uh, the doorbell rings. You go to the door and you're just nodding along, you know. And then they say, you know, your Doberman bites you, and you think, I don't have a Doberman, <laughs> you know. So you just you push back. Or where there's this voice generally in our society now, we don't really like the the you know high authority voice talking to you. So I I tended to think of this as more the kind of intense conversation I would have giving advice to a student in my office or to a friend over coffee. That moment where you lean forward and you say, you know, listen, and you say, you know, what you think that person should hear. Um, and with a lot of, um, this is what I've learned in it. And so I, in that sense, I didn't think it was, you know, um, uh, Prince Charles speaking after his coronation <laughs> to the nation, but something a little more intimate than that. It definitely feels intimate to me, yeah. So I guess I wasn't too far off in terms of hard-won advice. That's mm -hmm. definitely how it how it read for me. And it, like you said, it goes all throughout the book, um, all through those very last lines as well, which we'll talk about in a little while. But I want to talk a little bit more about family as yeah. well. <laughs> uh, you just mentioned your children. In addition to grief and place, family figures prominently in this book, and it's been one of your enduring subjects as well. Um, what do you learn about family by writing about family? And how can poetry in particular, or maybe literature more broadly, help us understand all the complex intimacies and traumas of family? I know that's a big question, but it's something you've thought a lot about. So I'm setting you up to, to think out loud for a while here. Well, I think my children, for example, mostly appear in my poetry as having taught me something. So my first book, um, The World is Dictionary, that was right after my daughter was born. And so there are a lot of poems about just how the experience of having a child just changes you, changed me completely. Um, you know, turns from this moment where, you know, you, your ch Magda was born and then I just, you know, I would have killed anyone who tried to touch her, that fierce mother love. And then um, uh, my son, Max, came along seven years later and... Um, is a story I, I think I can tell in Magda because I've told her enough times, but she came in, you know, she's seven years old, she sees her brother for the first time, she says, oh, now I know how Juliet felt about Romeo. And I thought, well, when you grow up, you're gonna see it's not quite the same, but she meant that it was love at first sight and that sort of fierce love that you have within a family. But I tend to use my children as some people who've taught me something, the experience of being a mother, 
Um, people have trouble writing about their children because they feel like they're telling really intimate secrets. But it, there are some things my children said, especially when they were younger, uh, or the remark that you mentioned to my daughter saying, what, what do you bet Miss Wisconsin is blonde? I, I haven't written poems where I really, I don't know, I don't think I use their lives. I use them as sort of children who say clever things and mean things to me. Um, and then I, 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 I use that as a poem. Um, my husband hardly ever appears in my poems because I think he would generally not like that. So I, I someone pointed it out to me. And I said, oh, I, I guess you're right. I guess he's like the, you know, the antibiotic or in a Petri dish and stuff won't grow for it won't go there. But um, um, I think family is important because it's it's our world. Um, it's 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 the way we judge what the world is and what the world has been to us. Uh, my parents um, and the death of my parents are in the poems a lot. My sister sometimes. My parents have been dead an astoundingly long time. So they they died when I was in my early twenties. So um, it's strange how much I still think of them. But I think anyone who has parents, which is pretty much everyone, anyone who has uh, parents who passed away, which is a lot of people, realize that they're sort of always with you, and you're always sort of thinking over your childhood. Not because I, I look backwards, because I actually think of myself as a person who never regrets anything and doesn't look backwards, but as a sort of trying to make sense of the world. They're, they're the world you lived in, and it shaped you. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about parents, because um, there's such an urgency to the poem uh, poems about parents mm -hmm. in this collection. And obviously, as you said, we can't assume these are all recent poems, um, but uh, I was particularly struck by that level of urgency about parental death, maybe because it's something I'm thinking about myself a lot right now. Um, but you capture the sense of um, having the kind of rug pulled out from under you mm -hmm. so powerfully in these poems. And uh, this is this is not one I mentioned to you ahead of time, but now I'm, I'm remembering it, um, how the parents left us on page 25. Uh, I would love to have you read that for us sure. the beautiful evocation of what you were just talking about how the parents left us they fell from their lives and the fall seemed to take first forever then no time at all they fell like the girls in the great triangle fire fell or jumped surprised in the middle of work by the fire that consumed them one mother pushed a father from a tower then another dragged her down. They fell as if into water, except there was no water, no Potomac, no Seine, the Hudson uselessly far. They fell into air like unwary kittens, fell to where no doctor or priest or fireman could rescue them, fell into the ash bottom of a pit where we would never find them, though we sifted for years and years. That morning watching, I felt like the tin man, chest empty, heart vanished, like the scarecrow, no trace of a brain. Like the cowardly lion, all meaning gone from courage, I lost my nerve. Our nerves stretched as bright and fine as the threads of saffron women gather from crocuses, exchanging the hours of their lives for worthless paper money. That day, paper blew, burning through the streets. Sometimes, standing on my balcony, I think it never happened. All the children still have their father or mother. No half-orphans here. No falling. Not here. Not when we have elevators. Not when we have flying machines. That's Madison author Jessie Lee Kirchival reading from her new book, I Want to Tell You. 
If you'd like to join our conversation about poetry or have a, a celebration of poetry or favorite poem you'd like to share, a question for Jesse Lee Kirchival, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. Um, Jesse Lee, you looked like you wanted to say something about the poem right as you finished there. Well, I did because that's a perfect example of a poem that got pulled into this book. So that poem I wrote after 9-11. Um, and um, it was published in a magazine. I have to look in the, in the acknowledgments to remember which one. But it never fit in another book. Um, I think because I was thinking of it as too explicitly the one 9-11 poem that I had written. Um, and then when I was ta- thinking about it, I see that all my, you know, the things about losing parents, about loss, about, um, you know, the, the sudden events that take people away were in that poem. So it very much fit in this book. So that's a book, you know, a poem was written in, I don't know, 2011 or 2012 and comes out in a book that was published in 2023. Um, and... Um, and that's happened before with books that I've written, but not as much as in this book, where there were there were poems that had that I really liked, that I thought were great poems, that it just never fit in a book before. So is this as if you have an archive of poetry um, that the creation of a, of a collection of poems, you, you dip into these to, to find a specific moment? No, no. I would say this was only typical of this book. So okay. the, the books before were generally written over the timeline that it would take okay. to publish the book. So if my, at the first book, as I mentioned, uh, World's Dictionary, which has a lot about my daughter being born, also has a lot about a friend who was dying of cancer at the same time. So some of those poems I was just writing. And the second book, I wrote Dog Angel, which has some poems about my children in France. I actually remember sitting in on park benches while they played and writing the poems on you know little notebook I kept around my neck. Um, other things I have a book of poems that are about silent movies called uh, Cinema Muto uh, about going to this film festival in Italy every year. And those um, took place over a number of years because they they sort of structured like what if you went to the festival which is eight days long what would you see? But actually it's poems from I don't know six or seven years of the festival. But it's it's a project that I was working on. So I would say this book was unusual in that I think I started out during the pandemic writing poems and then realized that there was this spine or this sort of, imagine as an accordion folder of other older poems that I had written that could, I, I could write poems to sort of fit with them and go between them, all sort of unified by this idea of this voice. Mm-hmm. That, that unifying voice really does does come through because it's a remarkably coherent collection given, mm-hmm. as you say, the process of, of kind of pull, pulling from different times, mm-hmm. as you say. While we're on the subject of the writing process, uh, I want to bring up uh, a quote from one of my favorite poems in the book, I'm Telling You, where you write, it's not a life to hope for, always hunting words, writing books made of butchered forests. I was very curious, struck by these lines, what's behind them and what writers sacrifice in the pursuit of their art, what they gain. This is... um, Something you've devoted your whole life to is not only producing your own work, but cultivating other people's voices as well. Where did that come from? Oh, I think that, you know, I think I'm a writer like many writers, which is to say that um, I just have to write. And when I get frustrated with it, I think, well, if I could stop writing, if I could have stopped writing, I would have stopped writing. (laughs) I mean, it's just for people who are really writers, I think, and I'm not the only one because I have these conversations with writers all the time. It is like a religion. It is the way you examine your life. It is the way you live your life. And so for me not to write um, is inconceivable. It will happen one day and, and probably before I die. But, um, and, and so, but there, there are frustrations to it in all kinds of ways. Like when I was moving out of my office at the University of Wisconsin because I, reti- I retired when I retired and I had, among other things, I had many, many books, um, which is always a problem, but I had boxes of my own books 
and I had boxes of my first novel in hardback because someone had said, well, when they offer you the chance to buy the hardbacks, you should buy the hardbacks. And, you know, that book's in print and in paperback. And, and I thought, I have like four boxes of these hardbacks. And so I actually just took them to Vinnie's and dropped them off. I mean, it oppressed me to have that many copies of my own books um, and to know that really, short of just driving manically around the city, sticking them in every possible <laughs> little library, there was nothing I was going to do with them. Um, and so there is sometimes it just feels like you can see the physical representation of the time that you spent. And sometimes that seems brilliant and wonderful. And you think, what, what, how wonderful a life. And I really have no complaints about my life at all. And then sometimes you just think, another box of books. Um, and I have had a couple of friends die um, who I was in charge of handling their affairs who were writers. And the same thing, you know, driving somewhere, Vinnie's Goodwill to drop off a box of their books that they tried very hard to get published. Now, those books, I hope, are not burned or scrapped. Who knows? I hope they go out into the world and are read. I mean, their writing has not disappeared. But um, that just that moment where you face that amount of paper, which was, has your words on it, and know that really not even your dear friends would like to receive a copy free. It's a little crushing. That's the dark side of being a writer. Um, I don't think I have a dark side in the sense that I have sacrificed anything that I would rather be doing or I hope sacrificed my family or friends. Um, so I don't have guilt that way, really, I don't think. Um, maybe, maybe a bit, because you do find, I, this is actually less with poetry than when you take on a big prose project like writing a, a, a novel. I feel like I paid with the sheer amount of time I had to sit in a chair. You know, like my body feels older, <laughs> my muscles don't, the back don't love me for it, and that there was something else you could have been doing that was maybe, if not better, more active. Have you ever written about that process of dropping off the books? In, no, in I, I probably should. I probably should probably write an essay about that. That seems like a very essay subject. It does seem. seem and really actually, nice. at the at the university, every couple of years, some family member, a widow or a. Uh, a, a son or a daughter would drop off a big box of books of some one of their parents, a book they'd had published or an academic book, um, saying, you know, I'm sure you know what to do with these. And the truth is, we didn't know what to do with those. Mm -hmm. And it's poignant as well when you're you mentioned you're you're dropping off the books of your uh, deceased friends. Yes, you know that that's a emotionally complicated process, perhaps more so than dropping off your own books even. It is, because when you were left with that responsibility, I'm not sure that that's what they had in mind, but you do the best you can do, and then at some point you're thinking, again, the big box of hardbacks. I think everyone who has a copy, wants a copy, has a copy, and now we will just hope that they will be distributed free <laughs> through, the, through the book, through the bookstore at St. Vincent de Paul, mostly. Which we're talking about it sort of uh, as a loss in a sense, but that's also an act of love, right? It's also an way. act of yeah. love. And I actually, I, if, if I were, I wasn't entirely joking about driving around and putting them in the little libraries, which, you know, in my neighborhood, you know, I, I live on the Near East Side on Jennifer Street, is every couple of blocks. Um, and I'm always putting things in the little libraries because I don't keep all the books that I read. And I'm taking things out of the little libraries and I love them. Um, and so that is a way of just, you know, of giving a book to the world and, that's what books need to do. They're not saying they have to have been bought. I just said sometimes you have too many that weren't bought in one box, and that's depressing. We'll continue now into your work um, in another way of producing mm -hmm. books, which is as a translator and editor, which you've been increasingly involved in over a little, little more than a decade now, right? Yeah. Yes, my yeah. first uh, translation came out in, tw well, a little, uh, in 2015, I think. 
So uh, you've been spending long periods in South America, in the country of Uruguay in particular, immersing yourself in that country's contemporary literature. There's a whole story there to tell us about what drew you there, what drew you to translation, and what you've been learning from that process of translation. Well, that was an amazing. I have to back up for a second and say that all my books are actually still in print. <laughs> you can buy them right now, of course, and use copies. But anyway, um, uh, the, going to Uruguay was an amazing thing for me. I, it was quite an accident that I turned out to do translation. I just, in the sort of, I think, midlife crisis, decided I wanted to learn Spanish. Turns out we had the same Spanish tutor. Um, and because I'd grown up in Florida and never taken Spanish, I was born in France and I'd had French through high school and college, not really done anything with that. And I just suddenly thought, you know, I just suddenly had this bing awareness that everyone is speaking Spanish around me in America. It's the second language of America and it's ridiculous that I didn't know it. So um, I, I first tried to sit in on a class at UW. Um, some portier let me sit in his 7.30 in the morning class. And it turned out I was just as bad a student as I'd ever been in, in language classes in like high school and college. I was sitting in the back of the room behind somebody because I hadn't done my homework. <laughs> and so I thought, no, I have to have more accountability. And so I had a tutor. And then I thought, I had a sabbatical. I'm going to go someplace where I cannot, you know, I cannot speak English. I just have to do this. And through a very roundabout uh, system, really just complete accident, we en I ended up choosing Uruguay. Um, and I just thought, well, I'm going to learn Spanish. And people said, you're going to translate poetry, right? And I said, no, no, I just want to have conversations about tomatoes, just normal things. Um, if I was interested in translating poetry, I could have been translating from French, and I didn't do that. And that turned out to be a lie. I, I didn't mean it to be a lie. But once I had enough Spanish to do so, I started going to poetry readings. As my husband would say, I drifted into my bad habits, you know. So they have all these uh, poetry readings and bars, boliches, um, you know, kind of like having, you know, it's like a coffee house, restaurant, bar. And they'll have six, eight poets reading. Um, and so I just started going to poetry readings and discovering the books of Uruguayan poets. And it's a country that is absolutely packed with poets. Um, in, there are only 3.5 million people in Uruguay, which is sandwiched between Argentina and Brazil. And the two things they produce in vast abundance are soccer players, football players, and poets. And so um, they have a lovely song, which is all about poets, 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 writing on napkins, napkins, napkins. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, and so the, the, they all feel from the most accomplished, I mean, the people who are, you know, could win the Nobel Prize um, to the to the to the youngest coming out of high school or college. They feel like they live in the world's smallest goldfish bowl and they can't get out because the distribution of books, even in Spanish, would just be in order. Way. It's hard for them even to get something across the river to Argentina. And you can take a ferry to Argentina. And so. My first project was an anthology called America Invertida, which is emerging Uruguayan poets, so poets more or less under 40. And I thought it was an easy project because I thought, well, I'll just pick one person to translate and uh, the 20, I think, or so or other poets, I'll pair each of them with an American poet translator and I won't have to do all the translations. Well, that's because I never had edited an anthology before. That, that's like picking out a project that is by definition herding cats and an entire herd of cats to herd. Um, you know, so many poets, so many translators. But it was a great project, and it really had legs. So I got all the poems published in magazines ahead of time, or nearly all of them. Um, we, I brought a group of, America, of young poets to the United States, and we toured around at, you know, we're at the Library of Congress. We did a reading at the Uruguayan Embassy in Washington, D.C. 
And um, and then a lot of them have gone on to have individual books translated and published. I've kind of, to count on my fingers, maybe 10 of them have had books, some by, translated by me, some by the original translator. So it was really a huge thing for Uruguay. Um, but at the same time, actually before that book, my very first book that was translated, just because it turned out to be a quicker project, um, was by a wonderful woman that I love more than anything, Cerce Maya, who's an Uruguayan poet who just turned 90 and is the most zen, beautiful person in the world. And so I had translated her book, um, a, a Selected Poems, um, which is called uh, Invisible Bridge. It was published by Pittsburgh. And it actually came, managed to beat the, <laughs> beat the anthology into print. Um, so it came out in 2015. And she was a great person to work with for a first person to translate because she just is so giving. She would always say, um, you know, the, the, port, the most important part of this book is that we, we got to know each other. Um, She's just an absolutely lovely, glowing, luminous human being. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with poet, author, Jessie Lee Kirchival about poetry and her new book, I Want to Tell You. If you'd like to join our conversation or just offer an anecdote or celebration of poetry or a favorite poem or a question, please feel free to join our conversation 608-256-2001, extension 9. Jesse Lee, I'd love to hear more about the culture of poetry in, in Uruguay. Martina Espada has this well-known book, The Republic of Poetry, about Chile. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be something in the air or in the water there in the southern cone of South America in terms of the role of poets in society. And what have you learned about that that you think is important to share here in this uh, North American context? Well, I think um, I think intellectuals, literature have always had an important part in, 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 in Uruguayan society. It's a society that chose very early to have universal education, universal education of men and women both, so that one of the things that's amazing in Uruguayan poetry is the sheer number of women poets, and also that that's recognized in Uruguay. Um, they, most people would say that some of their, their most famous poets were women. Um, and so that's interesting. Um, it's just something that people have felt that they could do, especially I just put together this giant anthology that was just co-edited, a giant anthology that was just published down there called in all Spanish called Flores Rares, which is 53 Uruguayan women poets who wrote, uh, were born before 1940. So the sheer amount of books that I read, which just means that all these women were writing books and writing poetry and publishing books, um, is something that was, you know, sort of like I do, an expression of my soul, an expression of their lives. And some of them went on to become famous, but those people are not like black swans or blue moons. They're sort of supported by this culture of poetry. And although I was particularly interested in that for women, also for men, that that um, the people, that students in high school, that college students, that everyone just feels like they can write poetry, it is in, in the it is a, a profession free of any material concern, actually. I mean, in the United States, it probably is too. I mean, one can make money being a novelist, being a poet is like becoming a Buddhist monk. Um, but um, in Uruguay, that's really true, because even the, the best-known poets pay to have their books published. There is really no money in it at all, even to the limited extent that there is in the United States. But what they write about isn't different. I mean, I think people sometimes think, oh, their poetry must be so shockingly different. But, you know, they read Emily Dickinson, they read Walt Whitman, they read pretty much everything in translation. There's a real influence of French poetry. And so when I would go to a poetry reading down there, the young poets, I would think, well, it's in Spanish, but it could be my MFA students, it could be poets here. The way they distribute the work is different. But when I when it comes into translation, I think 
I think it's so accessible. It's so it's so. Um, and I don't mean accessible in the sense that, that they write simple poetry. I just mean that anyone who likes poetry or thinks they might be interested in poetry shouldn't be put off by the fact that it's published in a bilingual edition. Um, Cersei Maya writes poems about many of the same subjects I do, plus nature. I'm not really a nature poet, um, and you know about the meaning of life, and often short little poems that seem to be about the river or um, a hummingbird, but are really about the meaning of life. And I, I think that um, I think I think Americans they sort of exoticize the idea of what poetry is like in another country by way of thinking they couldn't possibly read it, <laughs> and you know. You can, you can argue that a translation is never the same as an original, although many people here read Spanish. That's why they're published in bilingual editions. But I think you could pick up any of these poets from the young ones who are writing about something, you know, angry and ferocious and sexual to someone like Cersei writes calmer philosophical poetry. And you say, yeah, OK, I could just hear that person. I'd like to sit down and talk to that person. The first name that comes to mind when you're describing Cersei Maya's work is Mary Oliver. Is, is there an affinity there? You know... Maybe. Her, Cersei's poems are generally much shorter, uh, although Mary Oliver's are. Mary Oliver's not a bad comparison. I, I, the, the person I, I usually think of, but this will just move you in translation to another country, but her work reminds me of Witzlava Szymborska, the Polish uh, Nobel Prize winner, where it, it seems to be a poem about something that's very simple, but it isn't. Is there a political dimension that maybe that's starting the question in the wrong place. Of course, there's a political dimension. Yeah. What is the political dimension? Or do you see poetry and politics intersecting in a different way than they do in the United States there in Uruguay? Well, that's a good question. So Uruguay had this terrible uh, military dictatorship, um, 70s through the 80s, partly, mm, partly, largely sponsored by the CIA and our government. So at the same time as Argentina, the one in Argentina is more famous being thrown out of planes to their deaths, et cetera. But in Uruguay, actually, a higher percentage of the population was in jail. And their recent ex-president, Jose Mujica, was the head of the Tupamara guerrillas and had been in prison in solitary confinement, some of it at the bottom of a well for 13 years. And when he came out, he just said, let's start a you know broad political party and get together. So there's this feeling in Uruguay, I think, um, of unity in some ways, and yet the divisions are still there. I would say that the poets are mostly on the left, some of them on the extreme left. Um, and, and in order where you can be partido comunista, you can be a Maoist, um, and um, and some in the middle. I, I only actually know one poet who politically I would say was on the right. Um, I would say in the United States, poets tend, uh, let's assume the Republican legislature is not listening to war, tend to be a little on the liberal side too, on the left side. Um, and um, maybe that's just true of culture. But so um, they, there's been a wave of po young poets writing about things that happened during the dictatorship, about all that disappeared, about bodies that would wash up, about you know your uncle having been gone for 10 years and coming back and no one talks about it. Um, and it's sort of a new generation reliving that. Um, some of the older poets too, I translated a poet called Tatiana Oroño, in her 70s, writes some beautiful poems about the dictatorship. Um, and some of them were very deeply affected. Cersei Maya's husband, um, Ariel, was sent to, it was a doctor, was uh, picked up and sent to prison, and she never knew if she would see him again. She wrote a, a beautiful little novella about that mm. uh, called A Trip to Salto, about getting on the plane, getting on a train with one of her children, uh, hoping that the guard would let the child see his father, her father, um, because it might be the only chance. Now, Ariel did come home. He actually just died last year. But, for example, he would never sleep a night away from home. 
It affected him all of his life. So there's this kind of trauma coming down through the generations. So however politically fraught we've been in the United States until now, and there have been many terrible things, and I've lived through many of them, um, there's not been something quite like that to overcome. And so in some ways, there's a there's a sorrow there, a wound to deal with in the poetry. But it depends because, of course, we have we have um, this wonderful surge of voices that were, you know, silenced before in America, um, speaking about things. So I'm, I'm speaking about it, sort of a mainstream experience. But um, you know, my poets who are who are writing, who are who are black, who are um, you know, lesbian or gay or queer or trans or Asian, uh, wonderful poems about the you know the camps and during the Second World War. It's many, many, and, and we've mentioned before, the, the, the erased history coming back now of, of the um, First Nation, the Native people. So it's here, in, strongly in American poetry, too, but I think in, in, in Uruguay, it's a single visible wound. Uh, and so that makes it something that poetry has really been trying to, to deal with. You've been very involved in public life there, or somewhat involved through the mm -hmm. South American Institute for Resilience and Sustainability Studies. Yes. There, tell us a little bit about that organization's work and the anthology you help bring to life there, Earth, Sky, and Water. That was a wonderful accident, really. Um, so um, one thing that I've never had much contact with in my life at the university, weirdly enough, is scientists, right? They're, they're, we're all in the same big university together, but they're not my part of the university. Um, and actually, a, a dear friend of mine, um, Lori Beth Clark, who's in the art department at UW, was in this, it's called, it's called SARS, um, before I was. And she asked me to put together, even though I was in Uruguay, I, I knew that Lori Beth was going down to Uruguay, but I didn't know anything about this scientific institute. She asked me together to put together the anthology, to get uh, um, um, echo poetry, poems about the environment from Uruguayan and Argentinian um, uh, young poets, or poets, not young poets, and then we had a contest so that there was an outside judge and the ones who were picked won a money prize, which is really incredibly unusual in Uruguay. And the book was published and, um, and some of them got to come to the conference and read. Um, the, the, so that's how I, I, I became aware of it. But it's the most amazing uh, organization. It was founded by an Uruguayan science, scientist, Nestor Matzeo, and a European scientists. For a long time, um, one of the uh, scientists here, the UW, was involved. And they always had this vision, I think coming partly from Europe, but partly from Uruguay too, that they should also involve artists and visual artists, in the case of Lori Beth, me, a writer, and also people from the humanities as a central part of their annual conferences that they put on where people come from all over the world um, and just as part of their vision. So they sort of have these things going on all during the year where they're doing um, wor amazing work on um, water and sustainability of agriculture and, you know, just there's a, there's a, a webinar or a conference or students working on something all the time. And then pre-pandemic, they always had a, a, a in-person big conference that had a theme and scientists and, and artists would come from all over the world. Um, to really work in uh, in Uruguay on these 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 subjects, and now it's been going virtually through the pandemic, and it's sort of gearing back up to have a, a in person thing. I mean, the 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 day to day work at Saras, which has an actual building and is in uh, uh, in based in uh, the the Department of Maldonado in in Uruguay on 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 the beach up up the beach from uh, from the capital Montevideo, but the the being able to bring people in for a big conference has been stymied slightly by the, um, by the pandemic and a little bit by the change of government in Uruguay because everything's subject to politics. Politics has a right of, uh, Uruguay has a right of center government now. Um, but it's, it's really 
an amazing thing. And I had really never been around artists before, I mean, around scientists before, and scientists who are thinking deeply about the future of the planet and basically whether the planet has a future, which I think they think no, but they're being very cheerful about it. And so, I mean, that's to say they're working hard to make sure that there is a future. But I think when push comes to shove, they think no, which is also interesting. Um, and, and it's just, it's been a really great experience for me. What have you learned in particular about that intersection of science and art or science and literature and, and how they can cross-pollinate each other and um, what artists can add to the conversation about sustainability? Well, I think that, that when they first were thinking about it, they thought the artists would help get the word out. Like we were the PR. Um, and, and sometimes that's true. Um, but um, I think that they this quickly comes to a realization that it's a bigger thing than that, so that the influence goes the other way too. It's a way of bringing in the vision of humanity into the scientists, because I think we all, I, I know I, I, you know, if I'm getting caught, caught in my little world where it's a big deal for me that was, April was National Poetry Month, but I'm sure that most people did not know it was National Poetry Month. Um, and then the, the scientists get working on a very small level. And so um, they have a project, right? And so, um, and they're a very specific one. And and the, the being around the other scientists opens them up because, you know, it's not like science is one thing. You know, you're working on, you know, some organism that you want to control for, um, you know, because there are blooms of algae that make the water undrinkable. But then people come in and they're looking in a much bigger way about the about the environmental system. And then the artists bring in this vision, I think, that's essentially human of, you know, well, how, how, do, we, how do we live with that? How do we live with that idea? And we had a conference that was specifically about sustainable agriculture and food. And in that one, you could really see how the, the people in the humanities, people in the arts, all kinds of arts, and the scientists really were working together with you know, what you think of as sort of practitioners like cooks and, um, and uh, farmers and the head of the Department of Agriculture, because it isn't going to be a solution that you just find this one little thing and it's going to make it work. So it brought a more holistic or helped create a more holistic approach to the problems. More holistic approach, yeah. yeah. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and my guest today is Jessie Lee Kercheval, poet, author. We've been talking about her book, I Want to Tell You, and her life work as a translator, writer, and teacher. And I think that that's where we'll slowly start to end our conversation today. Jessie Lee, you've dedicated your life to teaching writing and at UW-Madison and cultivating literary community here in the region. And this is a time uh, when political debates about the value of higher education are really focused on monetary return on investment. And I like to give writers an opportunity whenever possible to talk a little bit about what the study of literature and writing has to offer these days to students. Um, you've, you've been working with students for decades now. What have you seen in your time with them that uh, provides evidence that this is something that should endure? Why should we be cultivating the literature and arts in higher ed? Well, I think I've seen them become better human beings. Um, um, you know, English departments these days are, are are often reduced to saying things, but our people get job is epic, um, you know, and um, and arguing that chatbots won't re replace us. Um, but there's just something more essential than that, which is that you have to learn what it was to be a human being before you were born, and to think about what it'll be to be a human being after you're not here anymore. And literature 
is the written record of that. I mean, you want to broaden it out and say that history traditionally has been part of that too. Now we tend to sort of section things off and there's the novel and there's the person who's writing some kind of professor's writing a book of history. But before that, people were all, you know, the, 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 it's, it's the life of the mind. People were writing down the things that they had learned. Um, they had learned from the people who told them things that they had made up. It didn't really make so much difference. And how do you know these things? I mean, how do you know these things if you don't read about them? Um, I would broaden it out, too, to a sort of more, again, you know, in a department, in a university, you tend to think too narrowly in departments. But um, in, um, when you think about film, which um, has a little bit more life, I think, now, and, but, but I think legislators would say, oh, well, it's a waste to study film, too. But that, too, that's, that's the, the vision of the way the world works. Um, as a person who, who goes to a silent movie conference every year and sees films that were made, you know, 100 years ago, it's, you know, it's a record. It's a record. You look at it and you say, that baby was alive or that baby, you know, that baby was acting in this movie and now they're not. But, I mean, it, 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 is, it, is, it places us in the world. And so that when something happens that's just this today, it's just now, this pandemic, it's not that there's never been a pandemic before. And you would re read about it and you would know about it. And if you have something you, that happened to you during it that you think is important, you can record it and send it on into the future. And honestly, I think that the fight to erase universities and to erase the humanities is to make us all into work robots who, who, who have no thought of the past or the future. I mean, how can we live without thought? Um, and so I am not a stickler about whether that thought comes from history. My son is a huge history buff. Um, or whether it comes from film or um, uh, music, but just to live in this moment, like there have never been people before you were born, and that all you need to do is what you were told to do for your job seems to be an amazingly reduced vision of life. And I know uh, it's been a couple of years now since you've been deeply immersed with students, but as we were talking about before the show, mm -hmm. you still got your mentees out in the world that you're in touch with. Um, how do you see that vision that you just so beautifully articulated playing out in, in their lives now? And in particular, I guess I'm getting at what are the challenges that students of the arts and literature are facing today that are maybe similar or different than those that you first saw when you first started teaching? Well, everyone has to go out and find a way to make a living. Um, and I think um, a lot of the people that I've taught have gone out to become teachers. Um, and that's wonderful, and I see them go on having their own students, and that's beautiful, uh, sort of whole generations of teachers. And I remember early on, I was at an artist colony, and I realized I was there with my first te writing teacher, and her first writing teacher was there. But in a, in a much broader way, I, I think um, it's a joke that I never go to have any medical thing done to me in Madison, like have my blood drawn, that it doesn't turn out the person doing it is a creative writing student. But um, they they... They find a way to live, but I think, again, that they take with them this idea that things are broader. And why creative writing in particular, I think, is, is useful, when I was talking about literature being useful, is they know that it was made by human beings. It's not like someone gave them this book, here, read Moby Dick, and it just has always existed, and they can't imagine that it's important. It's, they can think of it, and I, I've actually had a student hold a book like Moby Dick and say, I cannot imagine handwriting this many words. I mean, they have a sense of what effort went into that culture. And I think they take that appreciation on with them, um, you know, whatever they do. Um, I have a lovely group of, of former women students now that are all midwives. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know why the medical field has grown, so it takes people up. But... Um, you know, and they, they go on to have children. They keep in touch with me. I have a, as big a farm team in Uruguay now as I do here, but they sort of never go away. Um, and that's the lovely thing. I'm, I'm always getting announcements of 
books and babies and new dogs, and sad divorces, and you know they they they're out in the world and they feel this need to report back to me. And honestly, I think that's a great thing about being a teacher too that they have someone that they know. I mean, you know, they may they may have wonderful parents. I'm not saying I adopted all of them. It's just that they have someone that they always know will be proud of them and happy to hear from them. Yeah, it's a legacy of care, right? That, yes, that it's sending that love ongoing. out into the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think as long as we're talking about care, I think, and love, uh, I think a great place for us to end with a poem would be a, a lovely little poem, Say the Word Bliss. This is Jesse Lee Kirchival on A Public Affair. Say the word bliss when the gaudy sun routes the curtains and velvet is drawn back from window after window to let the morning in and night has yes to be imagined. Jesse Lee Kirchival, author of most recently, I want to tell you from the University of Pittsburgh Press, which you just heard a poem from, a former UW-Madison English professor. Thank you so much for joining us today here, Jesse Lee. Oh, thank you. This was a treat. I enjoyed it as well. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Shali. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat today. David Ahrens is in conversation with Catherine McGar about her recent book, City of Newsmen. Yeah.